Hey, good morning, y'all. Golly, come on now. Good morning. Okay, okay. Thank you. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful y'all are here watching online on YouTube or Facebook. And, and for those of y'all that are here this morning, I'm thankful that you're here. We've, <clears throat> we have been in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, for, for really a few months now, breaking it up into different little series based on what Paul's talking about. The last two weeks, we veered off of that. A couple of weeks ago, we, the Sunday after the election, we kind of addressed what was going on in our world what, you know, with a biblical worldview. <clears throat> and then last week, Richard brought us a message uh, from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is an awesome chapter in Scripture. But today, we are kicking off a new series in Romans called Blueprint, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. We're going to be at the beginning of chapter 9 today in the first 12 or 13 verses. And chapter 9 in Romans, it's weird, but it oftentimes gets blown off by, by preachers. It gets blown off by many, uh, many authors, many, many theologians kind of blow Romans chapter 9 off and, and they do that because they think, and I must say mistakenly think, that this passage, particularly the first 20 or so verses, that the pa this passage is not relevant uh, to the church. But as we check it out, as we walk through this today in particular, you're going to see that there are truths in these verses that we really, really need to understand. Now, and so far up to this point in Romans, these first eight chapters, Paul has been all about proving, uh, laying down a case, because you remember Romans is like a courtroom scene almost, and Paul is, is making a case, and the case that he's making is he's trying to prove that salvation is a sovereign work of God that is brought about by faith through grace. And he's been telling us that men and women are saved by trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross and not by rituals, and not by ceremonies, and not by works. The Jews up until that point, it was all about rituals and ceremonies and works. And Paul is laying down this case for faith and for grace. And so a Jew that was either reading Romans or hearing, uh, hearing the word spoken from the, the book of Romans very well might mistakenly think, might mistakenly get this idea that Paul is saying that salvation by faith was for Gentiles only. Y'all know what a Gentile, a Gentile is just somebody who is not a Jew. So they may, a Jew may mistakenly think that Paul is saying that salvation by faith is for Gentiles only because it's all about works for the Jews and, and that there's no hope for them. They may think that. So it seems like Paul pauses at the end of, of chapter 8. He pauses for a minute in his teaching to let all of his readers know that God was not finished yet with the Jews. They still figured into his blueprint, into his blueprint, his plan for the future. And you'll see on the screen, that is the name of this series, Blueprint. And the name is Blueprint because in the mind of, of the Lord, there's an intricately drawn out blueprint that is playing out and it's rolling out. And that blueprint, that plan, that set of plans 
is rolling out with Gentiles and it's rolling out with Jews who are Paul's very own people. And so here Paul begins to, to draw us a picture of this blueprint, these first 12 or 13 verses. And as I, as I was studying Romans in the last month or so, I noticed two pretty big distinct things that Paul starts this section of Romans chapter 9 off with, and the two things are passion and promise, passion and promise. And the first four or five verses of, of chapter 9 display the passion of an evangelist. Paul was an evangelist, and these first few verses display his passion. Really, Paul is pouring out his heart. He is just pouring out his heart, and it is a, it is a glimpse Truthfully, it's a rare glimpse of the burning passion that every single servant of God ought to have. You and I, if we name the name of Christ, we should have a burning passion. We should be people of passion. So y'all listen to the first few verses, starting obviously in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. This is Paul writing. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When I listen to Paul, when I look at the Apostle Paul, I see a heart. You can see it in his words. You see a heart of concern. Everybody have a worship God? If you don't have a worship God, I really do need you to raise your hand because you're going to be participating some with writing some things down. So I see a a heart, first of all, a heart of concern. And he says, it's like he's saying, if I'm lying, I'm dying, my heart is broken. The text says unceasing anguish, torment, pain, sorrow, grief. The King James translation of this says great heaviness and continual sorrow. Paul is, is grieving. Well, oh my gosh, what is it that he is grieving about? Where's, what's the source of the pain? What's the source of the sadness? What's the source of of Paul's grief that he talks about here in these first two verses. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And so he answers the question, where my, where's my grief coming from? Where's the anguish coming from? He answers those questions in these verses. And the, in, in that answer, first we saw Paul's heart, a heart of, of concern, and now we see a heart of compassion. There's concern and there's compassion. And he says in these verses that it is the lostness of his people. It's the lostness of his, of his people that is just breaking his heart. And he says, for the sake of my people, for my blood, for my kinsmen, for, the, for their sake, he says, cut me off right now from the Lord, send me to hell. That's what Paul is saying in those verses. If he could, he would willingly forfeit his own salvation. He would willingly forfeit his own forever for his people. If he, if he could forfeit his, his forever to lead his brothers and sisters in the flesh to Christ, he'd do it. Now, obviously, it doesn't work that way. Obviously, you can't go get a refund, uh, a gift card on your salvation, get a refund and give it to somebody else. It don't work that way. But he's, this is what you're seeing 
is the true heart of an evangelist that yearns for other people's salvation. And look, you hear me say this often, and I'm going to say it again right now. We as believers don't weep enough for the lost. We don't. Where's the tears? Y'all, where are the tears? Where's the, the unceasing anguish to use the Bible's words? Your dad is not a Christian. Your mom is not. Your daughter is an atheist. Your sister is Jewish. Cousin Eddie, I don't know what Cousin Eddie is, but he's not a believer. Y'all do know who Cousin Eddie is, don't you? National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Cousin Eddie that drives the RV. Okay, that didn't go over well. Bottom line is this. Do you have great heaviness and continual sorrow? Let me soften that up even a bit. Do you ever even think about it? Do you and I ever even think about the fact that people die lost? Does the thought ever even cross our minds? Now, I had a buddy of mine the other day told me, he said, you know, you really have a big heart for the lost. And I, okay, that was, it was nice to hear that. I mean, it was nice to hear that. It was flattering. But I said back to him, isn't that how it's supposed to be for all of us? Isn't it? I mean, if we're a Christ follower, isn't that how it is supposed to be? I'm telling y'all right now, for real, having a heart for the lost is not the sole responsibility for men who are called into vocational ministry. Don't put that just on me. That's not the way. If we name the name of Christ, we should have a heart of concern and a heart of compassion. If we, you know, that song that the worship team led us in a minute ago, it said once I was what? Once I was dead. It didn't say once I was sick. It said once I was dead and then what? Once I was dead and now I'm alive. And so if, if we were dead and now we're alive, if Jesus had transformed us into what Paul says is a new creation. When our heart changes, when our heart is transformed, when that happens, that new heart, that new transformed heart should really and truly be busting, just busting with compassion for the lost. Every single one of us that call ourselves a Christian, we ought to be overflowing with compassion and concern for the lost. I want you to do two things right now. I want you to get out that worship guide. And there's a spot in that worship guide with a blank in it. And I want you to write the name of somebody in your world, a friend or a family member or a co-worker, somebody that is not a Christian. Write, like literally, write that name down in that blank line, number one. And I want you to commit. I don't see a whole lot of people writing. Write the name down. I'm like, I'm straight up for real. Write the name down, and I want you to commit at a minimum for the next 30 days to pray for that person, to pray for that person. I even gave you a little template of a prayer, and you don't have to use it, but if you don't really know the words to say, there's some words to say. I don't know if it's on the screen or not, um, but it's in your worship guide. And really, it is just simply this. It's Lord, you know, let, write that name down. It's Lord, I... Uh, uh, I pray for my mom and my dad. I lay my mom and my dad at your feet. I know they're lost without you. Lord, reveal yourself in an undeniable way to them. Lord, they've been walking in darkness for so many years. Lord, show them your light. Show them 
who you are. Let them walk out of that darkness and walk into your light, and it's in your son's name. I pray amen. Do that, y'all, every day for a minimum of 30 days for your lost friends. We should do that. And so my prayer for all of us watching online or if you're standing or sitting here is that all of us would develop over time the same love, the same compassion, the same concern for our lost friends and family as Paul has for all of his family that is all Jewish and none of them are, are saved. Let us do, that ought to be your prayer for yourself. Let me, let my heart be a heart for the lost. And then verse five, to them. Well, who's them? Them are are the Israelites. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so here, Paul is reminding both Jew and Gentile that Christ's human ancestry. Write this down in your Bible. Write it down in the little margin of the worship guide. Write down Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, because that is Jesus' genealogy. That's what he's talking about. He's reminding Jew and Gentile that Christ's human ancestry runs straight back to and through the Jewish patriarchs. I'd love to go get in Matthew right now, man, and go just preach the genealogy for a month. There's all there's just major stuff there. What's the first book of the New Testament? Somebody tell me. Matthew. What's the first part of the first book in the New Testament? Matthew 1, 1 through 16. It's the genealogy of the Lord. It's a perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Paul is saying you can trace the Lord all the way back through the Jewish patriarchs. And so all of Israel is in line to receive God's promises. And it's in Christ that all of those promises ultimately are fulfilled. And so Paul, in these first few verses, he says, I'm just tore up, I'm just broken up over my kin people. And I would throw my soul in the pit if it would lead them to the foot of the cross and get them saved. He says, it's my people. It's my people that God entrusted with the word. It's my people that, the, that God entrusted with the covenants. It's my people that God entrusted with the promises. And it's my people through whom the Messiah ultimately was born. And so we see burning passion in these first five verses of Romans chapter 9. And then we see the promise of God. We see the promise of God. Look at verse, starting in verse 6. Read a little bit of verse 6 and then, and then tell you something, then we'll jump back in it. Verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word doesn't fail. Y'all do know that. God is a promise keeper. His word doesn't fail. Why does his word not fail? Because he doesn't fail. Because he doesn't lie. The word never fails. Even if we're faithless, he is faithful. Even when we fail, he doesn't fail. So the word never fails. The truth claims that are contained in this Bible, they never fail. They're unflappable. They, are, uh, they stand. The word stands the test of time. 
The Word is our authority. It is, it is the only infallible and inerrant authority in our lives today is the Word of God. It never fails. It ought to be the light that shines and leads us into correct thinking and correct believing, and it ought to be the template for how we practice, how we walk, our daily life. What do we do? The Scripture should guide that. It should be this beacon of light in the darkness that, that shows us how to believe and how to act. It is the authority. We should listen to it. Listen to Him. It's the primary way that He speaks to us today. Listen, y'all, there's a Navy Admiral, and he's sailing, and he comes upon this big light, and he thought it was a ship. It was a ship that was heading straight for him. And now this dude is the highest-ranking officer in the United States Navy at this particular time. And so he gets on this big, I don't know, bullhorn, loudspeaker, whatever it is that those big ships have, and he says to the ship behind that light, he says, move 10 degrees south or we're going to crash. And it said, I will not move. You move 10 degrees north so you do not crash. And now this dude is an admiral. He's the highest-ranking officer in the United States Navy. He's like, he's getting irritated. He said, don't you know who I am? I'm an admiral in the U.S. Navy. Again, move 10 degrees south so we don't crash. And the voice comes back and says, I shall not move. You move 10 degrees north so you don't crash. And the captain gets back, and now he's really ticked. He gets back on the loudspeaker. He said, what part of I'm an admiral in the United States Navy did you not get? And the voice comes back and says, yeah, I get it, bro, but I'm the lighthouse. The lighthouse doesn't move, y'all. The word is unflappable. The word doesn't change. The word doesn't fail. We fail, but the word doesn't. The word of God has got to be the authority for the life of a Christian who is living with a kingdom mindset. Do y'all get what I'm... The, for, for a Christian who is living with a kingdom mindset, a kingdom mindset, not a church on the trail mindset. I love our church. But a kingdom mindset, it's one of the reasons why we have multiple ministries in our church that have multiple churches in them. Because we want to be kingdom-minded. Not our church-minded, but kingdom-minded. So Paul had just run through in the first uh, four or five verses. He runs through a bunch of blessings that God had, uh, had bestowed upon the Jews, the, that the Jews enjoyed, the covenants, the promises, the word. He entrusted the word of God to them. Um, and, and he says in verse 6, so it's not like God's word somehow failed and fell apart. And I believe that he is addressing the fact that all those blessings, the covenants, the promises, the word, his entrusting of the word of God to them, all of those were designed at the end of the day to lead that, those people over that couple of thousand years to recognize Jesus when he shows up on the scene. Well, how did that play out? What happened? What happened when the Messiah was born? What happened 30 years later as he starts his public ministry? What happened? Well, in mass, the Jewish nation didn't respond. They didn't. Some did. In totality, they didn't respond to the gospel. And so Paul says, don't think that the word of God 
failed because they rejected Christ. God's word didn't fail. Human beings failed. Israel's history, and the truth is, my history and your history, is full of God fulfilling his promises in spite of our failures. We will fail. His promises will stand. My failure, I'm not big and bad enough to affect God's promises, right? I'm not powerful enough for my rejection of him. My unbelief in the resurrection, for example, does not change the fact that Jesus walked out of the grave alive. So the word of God doesn't fail. It doesn't. And then in the next several verses, Paul illustrates God sovereignly working his plan. God sovereignly working his blueprint. And he uses some Old Testament people, and you've got to focus on this because this is a little bit difficult. But he uses some Old Testament people and some Old Testament events, and he quotes from, uh, from Genesis, and he quotes from Malachi, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but he, but he, he uses them as illustrations so here's the rest of verse 6 and then uh, through verse 9 or 10. Paul writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, not all who, all Israel. So not all Jews are children of Abraham just because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, and then he quotes Genesis again. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. So this first illustration of God working his sovereign choice is Abraham, ultimately in some of his children. But it's about Abraham, and just being Abraham's physical descendants by blood for sure does not guarantee an inheritance. The line of natural descent, the line of blood, the blood Abraham's actual physical bloodline is not the same as the line of promise. Paul's making a distinction here. Abraham had three baby mamas. You do know that. Sarah, Keturah, and Hagar. Isaac is born from Sarah. Keturah and Abraham had six sons. And Hagar, who was the maidservant, had one son named Ishmael. And God, so you got eight boys, at least you got eight boys. But God made it clear that the line of promise would go through Isaac. He quotes Genesis 21, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God chose who among Abraham's physical descendants who would carry the line of promise. And that line of promise ultimately would lead to the Messiah. That, that line of promise ultimately would lead to Christ. Now, God didn't, didn't choose Isaac because he somehow was, was better than his half-brothers. He didn't call Isaac and Ishmael in and said, y'all arm wrestle for it and I'm going to pick whichever one of you wins. The arm. No, he didn't do any of that stuff. At all, the choice was made before any of them were born. It was simply God's sovereign choice. He's God. He gets to choose whoever he wants to. 
And he's working his plan. And he's working his blueprint. It rolls out through history. You notice this distinction he makes in verse 8. And it's a super important distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. Between the children of the flesh, the blood, the actual bloodline, and the children of the promise. The children of the promise are the spiritual offspring of Abraham, which includes every believer for all time. Let me talk about this physical descent thing for a minute. Now, and this is going to be potentially offensive, but it's the truth. It is a good thing if you were raised up in a home where your mom and daddy took you to church. It's a good thing. That didn't save you. Your mama and daddy cannot save you. You cannot have mom and daddy's belief. Mom and daddy cannot, cannot give you salvation no more than Paul can give his back to get his kin people saved. I said a little while ago, it don't work that way. So is it a good thing that you're raised up in a Christian home? Of course it is because the odds go up that you end up believing. But the point is you got to believe for you. you got to repent of your sins for you. Mama can't repent for your sins. Mama can't, mama or daddy, can't believe for you. Mom and daddy can lead you to the foot of the cross, but you got to repent of your sins. you got to believe for yourself, and you got to ask the Lord to save you yourself. You can't believe for your son or your daughter. You can't believe for your mom and daddy. People don't argue with conclusions they come to on their own. Lead your friends and family to the cross, but you cannot believe for them. But it's one of the points that Paul is making here. Second illustration is this. He starts in verse 10. He says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Abraham, Sarah. Isaac is chosen as the son of promise. Isaac marries Rebekah. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, the, the children that are in her womb, though they were not born yet and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, that word scares people, election. That word scares people, we're going to talk about that. That God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a strong, that's a strong sentence. So this illustration focuses on Isaac and Rebekah's twins, Jacob and Esau. And here again, God chose. God chose Jacob, the younger son, not the older son who was Esau. He chose Jacob to continue the line of promise. Well, maybe you wonder why he didn't choose Esau. I don't have any idea why he didn't choose Esau. He's God. He gets to choose whoever he wants to. I know it wasn't because of what either one of them did or didn't do because they were not even born yet. And if it had been, Isaac, excuse me, Jacob did some pretty deplorable stuff. But it doesn't even matter because it was unrelated to God's choice. Now, now Jacob, maybe Jacob is in heaven, maybe Esau is not. I, I don't know. And so I want to address two or three things in those verses that are problematic for people. Verse 11 says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, number one. 
Number two, verse 12 quotes part of Genesis 25 and says the older will serve the younger. In other words, Esau will serve Jacob. And then number three in verse 13, uh, which is a quote from Malachi, it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We've got to look at all of that in context together. Paul had just talked about Israel. And in verse 5, he says that Jesus came through their lineage, right? And he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Well, what is God's purpose in election? And why does it need to continue? And how does it, is it related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, I believe that Scripture teaches that God's purpose in election is to get his son born and get us saved. His purpose in election is to get his son born and to get us saved. It says it might continue. God's purpose in election might continue. Okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. It's Matthew chapter 1, y'all. Perez, Hezron, Aminadab, and on and on, and David and Solomon, and all the way down to what? Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. This is not about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's about Jesus. This whole book from page 1 is about Jesus the Christ. Now, yes, this passage is laying this plan out, and he's letting us know, guys, I got a plan, and I'm using Abraham, and I'm using Isaac, and I'm using Sarah, and I'm using Rebecca, and I'm using Jacob. I'm using all of them, but this, the passage is not about them. The passage is about Jesus. That's what, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, that's what that means. And then Paul quotes in Genesis 25, he quotes, the older shall serve the younger. And you got to look back at the beginning of that verse. Because it says, and the Lord said to her, who? Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Talking about Jacob and Esau. Israel came from Jacob's line. And the Edomites came from Esau's line. King Herod came, King Herod who's on the stage killing babies when Jesus is born, came from Esau's line. And so, of course, God <clears throat> chose Jacob. And he did because he's working his plan and he's working his blueprint. He's working his purposes. Ultimately, through Jacob's line, he uses Israel to accomplish his plan. They're a major, major part of the blueprint that brings Jesus Christ to the stage of history. And then probably the most problematic little sentence in there is, is from Malachi. And it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that's the, those are the Lord's words. Now, I do not believe for a second that Malachi nor Paul is saying, Jacob I loved and elected to salvation, and Esau I hated and elected to hell. I don't, that, not at all. Not at all. I believe in context in Malachi and in context in Romans, it's language of preference. It's language of priority. The Lord, it's like the Lord says, I prefer Jacob and his line over Esau and his line. It's not hate like despise or loathe or detest. And here's what I'm talking about. And you may be sitting there saying, but that's what it says. Well, it is what it says. Get it in context. Transport yourself back to the first century. 
Look at Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14. This is going to make this point. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you really think that Jesus is saying that you cannot be a Christian if you don't despise and detest and loathe your family? Of course not. Now, you may not can stand your family. I don't know. But it's, surely it is not a prerequisite for being a Christian. That is not what he's saying. Well, what is Jesus saying there? He's saying if it comes down to between your mama and your dad and me, you got to choose me. I'm the priority. I'm the preference. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Malachi, in, in, the, book of, in the prophecy of Malachi, that's what he's saying. Does that make sense? Did anybody ever struggle with that language, I hate Esau? I did for a long time until I dig in and study what the, really study the scripture. And I want, to, so I want us to ask a few questions. And really these are two or three questions that every time you pick the Bible up and read, you ought to be asking yourself these two or three questions. Number one is this. Whenever you approach scripture, you should ask these three questions. Number one, what is the ultimate goal of the biblical author? Whether it's Paul or Moses or whoever it is, what is of that passage, what is the ultimate goal, number one? Number two, how does that passage relate to Jesus Christ and his saving work? Because you know from page one, there's a thread of Christ woven through all of Scripture. He doesn't just show up on the scene in the New Testament, okay? It's woven from page one of Genesis. And number three is this. What is there, what if any, is there a principle in there that we can pull out and apply to our life in 2020? What principle is there in there? And I'm going to tell you this. I think Paul's goal in these first 12 or 13 verses of Romans 9 is to demonstrate in a huge way that God is working a plan. That, that, that nothing surprised him. This blueprint existed from before time began and it's in his sovereignty and he has everything in creation um, un, at his disposal to use to accomplish his plan. Remember what he said in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And in these, in these verses, we see a plan that begins with God's call to Abraham. And it weaves its way all the way down to the Savior's birth. That's a fulfillment of verse 11. Y'all, this passage is not about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's about Jesus. So what is it that we, when we leave here and head home or, or head to lunch, what is it, what's the nugget that we can take with us? What's the principle, um, what's the principle that can apply and make a difference in our life, the principle that will change to some degree, our walk, I think there's a couple. Number one is this. If you are a Christ follower, if you name the name of Jesus and you say, I am a Christ follower, think about the reality of the people in your world who don't know Jesus. Weep for those people. Pray for those people. Love on those people. Share Christ with those people. Let those people see that your walk and your talk jive together. Let those people, let you know, Lonnie, he's sitting on the front row. 
Let Lonnie's friends who knew Lonnie before Lonnie was saved and see him on the other side of the cross when he's saved say, dude, like what happened? Like what happened to you? That is them begging for you to share Jesus with them. What is it that is different about you? Let them see that and talk to them about it and pray for them. Pray with them. It's a, it's, and it's a, it's a marathon, y'all. This is not a sprint. We should want our friends. We, we should not be in a holy huddle like some secret club that nobody gets to get in, right? Let your friends see Jesus inside of you. Talk to them about it. Pray with them. Understand the reality that, that when you die lost, you really go to a real hell. Number two, super related to number one, is develop a way to get all of the noise best you can out of your life and focus on Jesus. Get it all, all out. That's why when we look at this passage we looked at today that I said it's not about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, Sarah. It's about Jesus. Get all of, that, all of the stuff in your life, get it to the side and focus on Jesus. The, 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 it, God's perfect plan, this perfect blueprint that leads lost sinners to a Savior. Don't allow your heart and your mind to get cu so caught up in the trees that you miss the forest. Don't, don't let yourself get so in the weeds that you miss the grand, bigger plan. The best example in Scripture is Peter. Y'all remember impetuous um, Peter who just jumps all over stuff. When Peter, they're on the water and Peter gets out of the boat. Y'all remember this scene, right? Peter gets out of the boat storming. They see this figure off in the distance and Peter gets out of the boat and Peter's walking on the water and he's got his eyes focused on Jesus and he's walking on the water. Unbelievable. Jeez, Peter's probably like, oh my gosh, walking on the water. And then, and then Jonah and the whale swim by and he took his eyes off of Jesus. That was a joke, y'all. Any of y'all ever seen Medea talk about Jonah swimming by and Peter took his eyes off the Lord? Well, what happened when he took his eyes off the Lord? He sunk because he took his eyes off the Lord. He had drowned everything else out. But, you know, Peter, squirrel goes by and Peter, like, jumps. Well, he sunk. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Drowned out all of the white noise in your life. Election. Blah, 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 man. Republicans and Democrats and this and blah, blah, blah. Keep your eyes fixed focused on Christ not things that are fleeting keep your eyes focused on Christ that's what this passage is about big picture is God setting the stage for the birth of his son so keep your eyes on Jesus and so what is in, 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 in order that God's purpose of election might continue and that is this that his son would be born, that his son would die a redeeming death on the cross, and that he would walk out of the grave alive. That is the purpose. That is the total purpose. So that me and you, 2,000 years later, have an opportunity to say yes to the offer and that that redemption can count for me. So if y'all would turn the lights down a little bit. If that's you today, that offer stands. 
It stands, and it has stood the test of time. And so I would ask you, if you're watching today or if you're here and you have never said yes to that offer, it is simple, man. Turn away from your sin. Believe that that death on that cross took care of that sin. Ask the Lord to save you, and he will. He is a promise keeping God. Let me pray. Lord, let today be the day that I do repent of my sin, that I turn away from it, that I believe that you died on that cross to save me, to offer me an eternity with you. Lord, I believe it, every word of it. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Real quickly, if that is you, our prayer team is in the back. If you're online watching, please fill out an online connection card and let us know. We want to walk that journey with you. We want to help you become a disciple. We just want to love on you, hug on you, not tackle you in the parking lot, but we just want to love on you, to hug on you, and to walk the journey with you. So y'all stand up, let's worship again.